ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today, the UN Security Council demanded that Houthi rebels in Yemen stop attacking international ships in the Red Sea. The U.S. military says there have been more than two dozen attacks in the last seven weeks, the most serious yesterday, when Houthis fired more than 20 drones and missiles right at U.S. and allied warships. Today, we take a look at the cascading effect of these ongoing Houthi rebel attacks in the Red Sea on Australia's live export trade. And a TikTok video made by Queensland mum goes viral, highlighting the lack of developmental services for kids living in the country. I'm just at my wit's end and I just don't know what to do. So I thought I would, there might be some mums on here that might have some recommendations for me. Um. Over a million people saw that. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. But first, let's take a look at the domino effect of the Houthi rebel attacks on merchant ships in the Red Sea here in Australia. Hundreds of miles south of Gaza, turmoil in the Red Sea not seen in decades as Iran-backed Houthi forces step up attacks on ships that they claim have ties to Israel. This has led to a major disruption in global shipping as companies such as oil giant BP reroute vessels all the way around Africa to avoid attacks. Now, BP is not the only company looking to reroute its ships. So, too, are Australian live exporters, which regularly send sheep and cattle via the Red Sea to the large Middle Eastern live export market. But the decision to avoid the Red Sea shipping lanes came too late for the MV Bahija, an export ship that left Fremantle almost four weeks ago with 15,000 cattle and sheep on board. It was ordered to turn back by government and in the early hours of this morning it redocked in Fremantle in Western Australia. And this is a conundrum for live exporters because now they have to work out what to do with these animals. WA Country Hours presenter Belinda Varischetti has been looking at the domino effect of this large geopolitical situation and she joins me in the studio. Now Bell, before we get right into the nitty gritty of the bigger trade picture, let's talk about the conditions of these animals because they've been on board just shy of four weeks now. It's really hot in Perth. We, we both can attest to this. In some parts it's as hot as 46 degrees today. So how are these animals faring? What do we know about it? Sinead, there's a lot of talk about the health and the welfare, the condition of these sheep on board this ship. But you really have to go back to the veterinarians. So on the whole journey of this ship, the exporter's vet has been on board and regularly updating the regulator, the Federal Department of Agriculture, on the condition. And all of those reports have said the health and the welfare of the sheep, they're perfectly fine. They're being fed, they're looked after, they're in good condition. But the really important person uh, that needed to report back was an independent Commonwealth vet. And the industry has been calling for this independent vet to get on board the ship as soon as possible. Mm. And that didn't happen. I mean, it came into Western Australian waters on Monday. It's taken this amount of time to get those independent vets on board. They've been on board and they're reporting exactly what the exporters vet has been saying, that these sheep are in very good condition. Let's hear from Dr Holly Ludeman. 
I've been in communication with the veterinarian on board and the sheep and cattle are in good health and welfare uh, and you know, the reports are going back to the federal government every day uh, and the appropriate systems are being put in place. Now that's Dr Holly Ludeman. Now she makes mention that she's been in touch with vets on board and as you said it was really important to get those vets on board, the Commonwealth vets, because they are independent. What about the numbers of vets? Are there, a number, are there enough? Uh, Yeah, they don't need any more vets to go on board to inspect. It was that really crucial part of getting the independent vets on board. Even though the exporters um, vet has been saying all of the, you know, they're totally fine, it's all good, but everyone needed to hear that from the independent vets, you know, the industry, the producers, and even the um, lobby groups who are against the trade, the RSPCA, Mm. all of those sort of groups. Everyone wanted to hear from that independent source. So now we've heard that the animals are in good condition from the independent vet, but the fact of the matter is, is we do have 15,000 animals on board a ship that's sitting out of Fremantle. Why aren't they just unloading them? Well, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't dock or no decision could be made about the future of the livestock and the sheep until those independent vets gave the tick of approval that everything's okay. So that's happened. The ship is now in the port of Fremantle, but the regulator is yet to tick off on the exact plan of what to do next. But industry is telling me that the most likely plan at this stage is that some of the 2,000 cattle will come off, maybe around about 400, and some of the 15,000 sheep will come off, a few hundred sheep. Now, why? Why is that? Why would that happen? Well, it's nothing to do with the health and welfare of the sheep. None of the, the animals, none of the livestock are sick. That's not the reason they need to come off. They need to come off the ship because the possible uh, journey this ship is going to take is a really long journey right around Africa to get to the market of Israel. So for every journey, the distance of that journey, there is a different stocking rate associated with the time that it takes to get to that journey. So that more direct route through the Red Sea region, you could have those extra numbers. Mm. But because now the idea is that they're possibly going around Africa, you need to get some of those numbers off. So, Val, you've been talking to farmers and you've been spoken to, speaking particularly to the WA Farmer Federation's Jeff Pearson. He has animals on board. Let's hear what he had to say about un- unloading the animals and what he thought about that. Well, I'm not feeling easy about it. I'm not feeling easy about bringing any livestock back into, into Western Australia and Australia for that matter. But the fact of the matter is you've got a lot more animals on this ship that need to be that need a home. So if it if it if it brings us to a situation where we, we unload a small amount of livestock to get the major livestock to market, well that's going to be the best possible outcome. Has the Israeli market definitely given approval that they're prepared to take this shipment? Absolutely. Business as usual in Israel. Uh, and basically all we need to do is recommit to that um, under the under the conditions of recommitting to that uh, market and um, basically they're in open arms to take the livestock as soon as they can. So that's WA Farmer Federation's Jeff Pearson. Now he's, he's talking about, say, option A. They will take this longer trip, they will destock to a certain degree, take the longer tri- trip back to Israel. I'm interested in who owns the animals at this point. The exporter owns the animals. So the exporter is Israeli-based Basem Dabar, uh, but obviously there's uh, an outlet here in Western Australia that's kind of facilitating, you know, handling it all. So that exporter owns the livestock. So the producers, the sheep and the cattle producers, have been paid for their livestock. 
So I'd imagine this is a nightmare situation for that exporter. Yeah. They, they, well, the word is they're going to bear all the costs of this. You know, they thought it was just a straight shipment to the Red Sea region, offload and come back. Uh, now, this longer journey, if that is finally approved by the regulator, I mean, it could be in the millions of dollars that we're talking about, that the, the costs of a change of a plan like this. So my understanding is that will be borne completely by the exporter. So that's the business side of things. But getting back to the animals, we know that thousands of animals have been standing, as I understand, in their own waste for all of that time. And if anyone who's been down in Fremantle say the place stinks, (laughs) what do we know about how they get rid of essentially all this excrement before they go back to Israel, if that's what happens? There is a bit of a smell in Fremantle. I'll check with a few people. (laughs) (laughs) We've all smelt it. It is quite something. So, that you know, you can't avoid that. Whenever one of these ships is uh, docked at Fremantle, anyone who lives in the area, any tourist going through, you can smell it, especially on like a 40, 45-degree day. Definitely get a waft of that. But, look, there's so many um, procedures in place to deal with the poo on board mm. these ships, Sinead. So let, let me go into yeah, a little bit of that detail. Well. <laughs> so for, there's cattle and sheep on board this ship. So for the cattle, their poo is a little more moist than the sheep, a little bit more sloppy. So there's sawdust in the pens, there's ventilation that dries it out as quickly as possible. And then with the cattle, uh, at certain points during the voyage, they're sort of moved and it's all washed out to the ocean at approved areas within the ocean where that happens. Mm. So then they put fresh sawdust down and then the cattle come back in. But it's washed over every few days. Sheep, it's a bit different. Their poo is a bit more like, you know, uh, rabbit or kangaroo pellets. pellets. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So it's a lot drier than the cattle. And with the the sheep just moving around all the time, it really compacts that poo, those pellets down. And it becomes like a, a pad, you know, a cushioning for the hooves basically on on those decks. And so they're never washed out in the sheep area because they don't want the sheep to get wet. They don't want the wool wet because then they've got another problem, you know, got a welfare problem on their hands then. And it's also the feed is really important. It's an organic feed, sort of grains, these these pellets that are specially made for the livestock on these voyages so that, you know, tries to keep that moisture out of their poo uh, so to keep that problem in check. So, look... My understanding is they're not in, you know, up to their knees in poo or anything like that. Those images are just not right. They're very strict controls about how to deal with the waste on these ships. But right now there is a sh- shipload of poo basically in dock. Will they have to go out to sea to get rid of it's, it? It's possible. I've heard the ship is going to head out later this afternoon and then come back in tomorrow morning. Uh, the State Agriculture Minister, Jackie Jarvis, said that was because there's another ship, you know, there's a really busy port, so they needed to make room. And this one wasn't expected to be there, of course, as we know. So uh, I think it's a little bit hectic in yeah, there with imagine. the ships moving. So possibly that's a chance to get rid of some of that waste, but I'm not sure. So right now we're talking about the nitty gritty of what's involved in, in live export. And um this has come as a result of this kind of domino effect of this geopolitical situation. That seems to be happening thousands of miles away, but it's having a direct impact here, not far from where we actually are. What does the live export market make of this giant spotlight that's just been put on their business practices? Look, it's it's an unusual situation. They acknowledge that. Um, I guess they'd rather not be dealing with this because the future of the live sheep trade by sea 
is right under the microscope and we're expecting the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, any day now to release a, a phase-out plan for the sheep trade by sea. Uh, obviously, the some politicians uh, have, you know, been very vocal at this point and using this situation, as have, you know, RSPCA, those animal rights groups coming out and just saying... Uh, this just highlights, you know, the problem with the trade. This is a wake-up call. Murray Watt should be fast-tracking or the federal government should be fast-tracking the uh, phase-out of this trade. This should be... But the industry is saying, look, he, that, they see it as two very separate issues. As I said, unusual, maybe unfortunate situation with the MV Bahija. But they know the heat is on. So they're coming out and really being strong about, you know, they're saying there's some mistruths being said by some politicians, by some uh, members of uh, animal rights groups, and they want to have the truth being said about the industry because it has reformed so much over the years. Mm. It was a troubled industry, but they've, they've gone through the ringer, to be honest, in terms of the reform process, constant reforms. There's a moratorium period in the middle of the year now where they can't travel to take a ship full of sheep to the Middle East in those really hot Northern Hemisphere summer period. The stocking densities have changed dramatically. Um, there's those independent vets on board inspecting things, reporting back on such a regular basis. So they really have gone, the industry really has gone through the hoops to lift its game and it wants the right to continue. Well, let's hear both sides of that coin. So I've got some audio here from independent Andrew Wilkie, who sits on one side. Frankly, the live export trade has to be banned, sheep and cattle, because we know from an abundance of evidence that the live export trade is systemically cruel, it doesn't have popular support, and it takes Australian jobs. So that's independent Andrew Wilkie. On the other side, you have spoken to Mark Harvey Sutton, who's the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. What did he have to say when you were talking to him? Well, he's just concerned about, as he says, some of the mistruths that are being said. You know, there's an opportunity, some of these groups and some of the politicians taking the opportunity to really uh, just pile on at this point. Um, and I guess you can understand that. You know, mm. they're, they're, there are groups, there are politicians, there are people in the community who are, see this industry as abhorrent and want the trade to end. So understandably, you would use a, a situation like this to argue your case. Um, you know, they want the industry over and done with today. So y you understand their position, but from an industry position, they're trying to fight and say, we've gone through reform we are, you know, doing everything everyone's asked us to. The statistics in terms of the um, mortality rates have improved. So they want it to be based on the science, not just how uh, a politician, a lobby group, an animal rights group feels about the trade. I'm sure those that uh, have not chosen to listen to industry, uh, that have not chosen to listen to the thousands of farmers in Western Australia that know this policy cannot work, sure, they're probably looking at this as an opportunity to further their cause. But the reality is with that policy, we know it's wrong. The facts on which it is based on is wrong. This is an industry that has reformed. It has the highest animal welfare standards in the world. We are very good at what we do. And yes, from time to time, there will be complications, but we do have 
processes to deal with that. And that's what needs to be made crystal clear. I think it would be a gross conflation to draw this circumstance as having any influence on the government's policy around the phase-out. The CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council, Mark Harvey Sutton, speaking to our reporter, Belinda Varischetti. Bell, I feel like there's a lot to go on this story, but I appreciate you bringing your knowledge to it. So thanks for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Experts say clinician shortages in regional areas are blowing wait times up to 18 months. In Queensland, a shortage of developmental therapists, especially speech pathologists, is leaving children and families on very long waiting lists. Scout Wallen has looked into this in Rockhampton. Rockhampton mum Hayley Batterson had been anxiously awaiting her son's first day of kindergarten. Yes, she's had all the normal fears about missing him and seeing him take this next big step, but Hayley was nervous for other reasons. By even three, he was just saying a couple of words and if he wants something, he just takes me to it and pulls my hand and shows me. And also just not interested in toilet training at all. Haley has been trying to get Nate, who turns four in April, into developmental therapies for a long time. His name has been on the wait list for nearly every speech pathology practice in the Rockhampton region for nearly two years. I feel like if we had got the help two years ago when I originally applied him, I feel like we would be in a better position now with two years worth of speech therapy, whereas I feel like he's behind now. So it's not unusual for workplaces or for services to have, you know, a year and a half to a two year waiting list in speech pathology. That's Barbara Zupan. She's an associate professor of speech pathology at Central Queensland University. She says the earlier the intervention, the better. The longer the gap in getting some assistance and getting that speech and language developing at an age-appropriate level, the harder it is to close that gap. After his first day of kindy, Haley had no choice but to pull him out of the program. After seeing him around like other kids, he yeah, he's just not ready. Like they're all talking, putting their bags away, and then I realised like, wow, he is definitely like way behind them and they all could say their own name. In a moment of desperation, Haley uploaded a video to TikTok, hoping to get some help from other mums out there. I just at my wits end and I just don't know what to do. So I thought I would there might be some mums on here that might have some recommendations for me. Um, and as for the response she's had. Holy moly. <laughs> I've literally received probably four to five hundred messages on TikTok saying so many mums have literally been on the waitlist. I reckon about 10 to 20 messages said they've been on waitlist for four years. Dr Zupan says those waitlists are because of drastic clinician shortages throughout regional Queensland, which she says are due to a number of reasons. First, because a lot of people don't know what it is. So we're not getting a lot of people coming into speech pathology to take it as a career compared to some you know, more known professions more students taking speech pathology in those metro universities so you know a university like ours will take a maximum of 25 students a year Um, they'll take some of those programs 100 
at a time. So they're just putting out more speech pathologists. The video Haley made on TikTok now has over 1 million views and it caught the attention of Queensland's Health Minister Shannon Fentiman, who helped get Nate in to see a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist and a psychiatrist. So we saw Haley's video on TikTok where she was just incredibly frustrated about not being able to get a private uh, speechy appointment for um, her child. I guess my message um, to mums and dads who might be waiting for an appointment is please see your GP and see if you can get an referral through to the public system. We're more than happy to work with families to make sure that kids get this very important service early on in life. But Haley just never thought that moving to central Queensland from Brisbane would be putting her kids at such a disadvantage. So many kids are in this position that someone needs to put it out there so something gets done about it, like whether they, I don't know, start doing government-funded speech therapy courses or something just to get more people through doing it. Dr Zupan says another solution would be to prioritise student placements in rural and regional areas. I think um, unless you've grown up in a regional area, it's hard to attract people from those metro areas to come here. Barbara Supan finishing up that story by Scout Wallen in Rockhampton. Waterfall season in Kununurra in Western Australia is absolutely stunning. For a few months, the country turns luminous green as water cascades down orange and pink cliffs and dry creeks run clear. And the water temperature is just perfect for a lazy weekend float. Now that is if you can get to them. Some locals want better road access to some of the best falls, especially when they're pumping. Ted O'Connor has this story from the East Kimberley. When Danny Carter floats in a pandanus and paperbark ringed pool and gazes up at water cascading down an orange sandstone cliff, his thoughts untangle into nothing. He says the build-up in Kununurra was especially tough this year. Day after day, over 40 degrees. Then the rain arrived and the waterfalls started running. The ancientness, the sacredness of the landscape here and just seeing it when it's dry and then seeing that water come through, it's almost like just a, a breath of fresh air and it just... For me, it just keeps... When I'm sitting under a waterfall at the end of a, of a big year, I just sit there and just close my eyes and just go, this is why I live here. That's what keeps me here, That's you know, and that's what will probably keep me here to the day I die. The resident of 13 years says the abundance and proximity of world-class waterfalls encourages much-needed workers to settle permanently in the outback town. The natural gems help residents deal with the stress and trauma of Kununurra's long-term social problems. It's almost just washing everything away, that build-up. It's not an easy place to live at times. It just seems to wash all that yuckiness away and it's like a rebirthing and, and starting over again. But often, after a heavy dump of rain, the Shire of Windermeese Kimberley will close Valentine Spring Road, which provides access to more than a dozen waterfalls. The most well-known are Black Rock Falls and Middle Spring. Mr Carter and other locals say it means they often miss the chance to see the falls about half an hour drive from the town while they are pumping. It's frustrating now, I think, that it is being closed at you know the peak of the rain and you, you get addicted to chasing waterfalls and we've, we're so lucky up here to go chase them all is that you want to see them when they're at their peak. He put a poll on a community Facebook page asking residents whether they want the Shire to look at improving wet season access along the road despite the potential burden on ratepayers. Kununurra Visitor Centre General Manager Vivian McAvoy was among the few hundred people who responded. The tourism leader says she supports the idea 
to help get more visitors to Kununurra during wet season. Let's talk about it. Let, let's Instead of putting it on the 10th page in an, an agenda item or, or plans to move forward, let's let's move it up the page a little bit more. You know, it brings people in at a time where cash flow is not so, so good. Uh, this time of the year, we've got a lot of operators that are sitting around and, and people twiddling their thumbs, retailers as well. The Shire's Chief Executive, Vernon Lawrence, says he's open to improving the road to reduce the frequency of closures. But he says such a project would cost tens of millions of dollars and need a state government or Commonwealth contribution. Previous years we used to close it for, for virtually the, you know, months and months at a time. Um, so we, we're a little bit more um, lenient, if I can put it that way, uh, at this stage. We try and open it as quickly as possible to allow people to have that. And it's a livability issue. You know, people do want to visit those things. We do recognise that we, we probably, from a tourism point of view, we probably do have to invest some, some additional funds into that area. If we're going to attract tourists to the, um, you know, the east of the Kimberley up here during, during a wet season. The CEO says while the Shire has not yet formally asked for grant money to upgrade the road, he will consider it in future planning. Mr Carter hopes such a project could help people in the future further enjoy what he relishes now. Then you've got Middle Springs which kind of cascades down and interestingly enough I always used to sit at the bottom pool and look up and never but I always look up and just go oh, I wonder what's up there and just and then it was like five I think I've been here five years and then actually walked up to all the different levels and um, continually blown away. There's no doubt it's absolutely beautiful. That story from our reporter in Connera, Ted O'Connor, and that is Australia-wide for this Thursday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.